Welcome to The Ticket. I'm Isaac Dover. Protests continue around the country over police violence. It's been incredible to see how quickly the politics around the issue has changed. Only a few weeks ago, few people had even heard the phrase defund the police. Now it's a slogan animating politics. So today I wanted to talk to someone who's been working on these issues for years. A progressive politician who's worked to remake the system, gotten actual results, and thinks this is actually a unique moment for broader change. Jumani Williams is the public advocate for New York City, the second highest elected post in America's largest city. He was a tenant advocate and activist who rose through New York politics as a vocal critic of the city's stop-and-frisk policing. He spent a decade representing part of Brooklyn on the city council, and as a council member in 2013, co-sponsored the Community Safety Act, which established an inspector general to oversee the New York Police Department and create an enforceable ban against bias-based profiling. The bill was passed over the veto of then-Mayor Mike Bloomberg. Weeks later, a federal judge ruled stop-and-frisk unconstitutional, dealing a final blow to the program. Now Williams holds the second-biggest job in New York City government. You may not have heard of the public advocate before, but it's often a stepping stone to bigger things. His two predecessors are Letitia James, now the state's attorney general, and before her, Bill de Blasio, the current mayor. I should also note, the job doesn't put Williams in the de Blasio administration. In fact, he's been a very public critic of the mayor. The public advocate is essentially the people's representative running the city council, and he's not been shy about using that role in his own way. He's been out in protests, marching with New Yorkers, often negotiating with police to give them more time and space to be heard. I wanted to talk with him because a lot of cities and states around the country have taken a new look at police reforms, and he's actually gotten reforms done hopes to see even more. So we called this podcast The Ticket in part because it was meant to be me going around the country, seeing politics as it was playing out in this election year. Obviously, that was all pre-pandemic when political reporters were traveling, when candidates were traveling, and that's all pretty much shut down. At least it had. When Williams and I spoke, I was on my way back from attending the first presidential campaign event that I've been to in three months a small event that Joe Biden did in West Philadelphia. Williams was also in transit. He was just arriving back in New York from testifying before the Congressional Black Caucus in Washington. And just an audio note, because of all that, his Zoom had some trouble early on, so you'll hear his end of the call switch then to phone audio. Here's our conversation. Jumani Williams, thanks for being here on The Ticket. Oh, thanks for having me. So you refer to yourself as an activist elected official. Can you explain what that means? Absolutely. I very intentionally didn't want to drop my activist title. I was told very often that I was too much of an activist, that I had to change when I got into the council. I had to be different. And I always said the best elected officials are activists. You uh, have been arrested in protests. You went to trial. Um, That is not the usual thing that we get out of politicians, uh, which I guess is your point. So I I believe in using every tool in the toolbox. I've always been a believer of king and nonviolence. I believe that civil disobedience is a tool that is necessary at times. Um, I believe I have certain privilege. I'm a cisgendered straight male. I'm elected official. And I believe the more privilege you have, you have responsibility to try to protect folks. And uh, I use every tool. I went to trial for trying to prevent Riley Ragbear from being kidnapped by ICE and sent home. Subsequently, thankfully, what we did helped him stay in this country. But I really believe that that one was worthy uh, to go to trial for. 
did you worry about putting yourself into the justice system at that point? Like, that's a choice that you got yourself involved in that way. My thing is always, particularly in times like this, that if you're still comfortable, you're not doing enough. And we have to make ourselves uncomfortable in a time like this. And it seemed like I, I can't keep saying, saying that to people and not doing myself. And that definitely seemed like a case where you need to push it. Uh, because, you know, God forbid if my family was ever in that situation, I'd want them, someone to, to help them. You, you've been an elected official for over 10 years now. These encounters with the, the police and with the justice system have been uh, essentially on purpose. So you've gone to these protests, you've done these things, you've put yourself into this. Did you have experiences with the police beforehand, living as a black man in New York City? Oh, yes. I always have uh, I mean, black for a pretty long time. I came to my own in New York City, you know, under the Giuliani era. So I had a lot of interaction. What people often do is confuse and conflate frequency with normalcy. So, you know, like anyone, most of my interactions have been positive. But it's also normal that if you're black and brown, you will have a lot of ones that are not. So I've had quite a few that were not. I have been arrested previously for, for nothing. I believe one was for black and free movement while I was waiting on the train. I've had a number of experiences like that growing up in the city. And so, when you know, it's what a surprise. It's always frustrating, but not a surprise. Right, but it shapes your worldview. Because you, you, you've got it that's always there in your head somewhere that this could happen or that you've got to make sure to do this instead of that so that it doesn't happen, right? Like, oh, yeah. I think what people forget is, you know, well, one, you never know what, someone's journey has been in life, what somebody's journey has been to get them to where they are right now. And uh, sometimes people forget about the journey. If you are black in this country, there are things that they, you have to do that many people don't like, yeah. just trying to make sure you get out of a traffic stop, like having people clutch their purse when you walk by, like being followed in the store. You have to adapt psychologically so that you can just keep going. Yeah. I, you know, as you say it, I'm thinking about obviously my own experiences with this. And when I was covering the presidential campaign in New Hampshire, I was driving at one o'clock in the morning outside of Manchester, going back to my hotel. And I was going a little bit over the speed limit. I got pulled over and I asked the cop to let me off. Uh, because I was like, come on, I, it was, I was a little bit over the speed limit. It's late. I'm just trying to get to my hotel. And the comfort that I felt even proposing that to the police officer, who, by the way, did not let me off at all, and I had to pay the <laughs> ticket. Um, but but that still, uh, as uh, 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 with my experiences with the police, it's, it, it, it didn't occur to me to be in that moment anything other than sort of plaintive with, <laughs> with the officer. So, and I think, you know, many folks, I mean, I've had officers, you have a conversation, and they try to cut you a break. And so I think those conversations are normal, I think the primary difference would have been in what you described, the fear that I probably would have had being late at night on a highway and no one's around. So th th that would have been the, the main difference is that, okay, I know I got to bring all my windows, turn on the light, put my hands on the one and two, yep. and speak very, very specifically, clearly, no problem. Like the, the fear that comes on it is very real. And if you're driving yeah. the night, you're driving the highway, you are very aware of your surroundings. And you, you know, you think, oh, man, I hope I don't break down here. Um, so those are thoughts that you have that people may not realize. Psychologically, that's something that you have to just deal with. Yeah.
you have been part of the protests uh, in, at all sorts of moments along the way here the last bunch of years, and it seems like uh, we get to these uh, explosive moments after Ferguson, uh, obviously there's Occupy Wall Street even, uh, the Eric Garner death, and, and I want to talk about that in a moment. But it, let's just start with, does what's happening now really feel different? Or is that just like the immediacy bias that we all have, where it's like, oh, this time is different? I feel like this time is for several reasons. And uh, uh, one indication was when NASCAR said they're no longer flying their Confederate flag. That was to me was like, oh, it might be something a little bit different happening. You know, on top of the, the rainbow of colors that are now screaming Black Lives Matter seems a lot different than even just a few years ago. And, you know, we've always said if you're going to attack the systems of privilege, the people who feel the privilege the most need to be out there pushing against. That's happening. But there's also other layers. People have been home for two months. Watching as a pandemic disproportionately went through their communities, killing people they know in the communities, uh, being just left to fend for themselves. And then on top of that, you have Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey, George Floyd, Amy Cooper trying to call state violence down on Christian Cooper for watching and bird watching the Central Park. So all of those things yep. together, the fact that you have Donald Trump as president of the United States, clearly, in my opinion, not even hiding the hooded cheeks, metaphorically. So all of those things make the moment a little more ripe. And while I am nervous that, you know, the further away we get from this, we're going to have collective amnesia again. But I'm hoping we can really use this moment to garner some, some transformational change. It took New York more than five years to fire the officer whose chokehold killed Eric Garner. Minneapolis fired the four officers who were responsible for George Floyd's death the next day. They're now facing charges. Is that progress? Um, I want to say it took Bill de Blasio uh, five years uh, to do this. And I want to just point out that there are officers who are responsible for Eric Garner's death that have never brought to account. And there's officers uh, who killed Darwin Smalls and others who never brought to account. So a lot of things that we, that we have to get done. If you want to say things in certain areas better, I mean, you have to, you have to say that. But it's usually, when people say we made progress, it's usually to pacify, to say stop pushing for more as if people are simply not deserving of equity and justice. So the police department I came in with as a city council member is different than the one that we have now. And I have to admit there are some things that are better. But the parts that we haven't moved much on are really bad. Transparency and accountability. And, you know, when we look at the country, Back, you know, when I did a press conference for Amy Cooper, I reminded folks 31 years ago in that same park, a woman was brutally raped, horrifically. Instead of trying to find the person who did this, they found any black and brown people they could and sent them to jail and they were innocent. A, a New Yorker took out a full-page ad saying that they should have a death sentence, even when they were found guilty, saying they must have did something. That man is the president of the United States of America, so... How do you gauge progress, really? All right, let's take a short break. We'll be back with more with Jumani Williams in a moment. Let's talk about police reform. Uh, This is now where the conversation has moved in a lot of places around the country. You have pushed through these actual reforms. 
in some measure, uh, and it's obviously not to the extent that you want them to be. If you were to give advice to people around the country who are now starting this process, what would you say to them about how to actually go about getting reform done? Well, I try to not use the word reform as much as possible and when we get used to it. I try to say we have we need entirely new systems because the system that's laid out now is working how it was designed to work. If you look at how the system of policing was born in this country, you look at how this country was formed, and it's not coincidental that these problems are going on. And I always say if the forefathers woke up, they might ask why we had a black president or why are the women voting. But other than that, they would say pretty good job of pushing forward the system that we began way back with. And so we need an entire new system and we have to rethink what public safety is. So, you know, quote unquote reforms are great and we should, we get them and we have to have accountability and transparency. But if we're not rethinking fully and totally what public safety is, then it's going to manifest some other way because we have to address the issues that we keep sending police to deal with. And sending police to solve everything in our society is not fair to the police officer, and certainly not fair to the community that the police officer is going to because they're not equipped to solve everything. So if we keep equating public safety with policing, we're not doing that great. What, what do you do about police unions? Because they're the ones that are usually aligning very strongly against any changes. Police union heads in at least in New York City, would make great police chiefs in the Jim Crow South. They have been terrible in trying to have discussions for better policing and safety. Just horrific. And they've just never want to come to the table. This is the first time, after weeks, I've heard somebody in the police union mention uh, that this was a, uh, not a good killing. And they're usually just defending, defending police officers. They have played a very bad role here. But... I believe workers should have unions and they should organize. And so um, my hope is that members organize for better reach and a better voice because they're not doing a good job. And, you know, unions have way too much power. I'm happy to see them scrambling now as many people are really, for the first time I've seen, saying we're not going to be bullied by your power and strength. And a lot of that came from unions threatening or pushing this narrative that the only thing that's keeping us safe between the hooligans and thugs is this blue line. And really that generally meant, you know, we have to keep black and brown folks in check or the whole system's gonna, the community's gonna fall apart. And people are starting to see, no, that's not true. Part of the problem is how we think about how to use police. That we send police to school, we send them to answer mental health calls, everything. And I think some of that's being peeled back. How much we can peel it back and for how long is a different conversation, but I really hope we can peel it back long enough to really get in there and have the honest conversations they need to have for everybody to say, police cannot solve anything. We have to stop asking them to. It's just unfair to them, and the, the results to the community are disastrous. I, it, it's, I think to a lot of people would might look at this and say, like, this is you're talking about this from the perspective of somebody in New York. New York is one of the most democratic states in the country, New York City. Uh, I came up covering New York politics. There are not a lot of Republicans around. Um, I, in 2013, when Bill de Blasio won as mayor, saying that he was the great progressive champion, and there were a lot of other progressives who were elected then, you were already on the city council, but you got a lot of new colleagues who were progressive. I wrote a story then with people saying, 
saying, like, maybe this is going to be the great progressive experiment for the country to see. And obviously, I know that's not the way that you see what happened over the last uh, seven years play out. But what, how, how does that happen? If, if you can't get the kind of change that you think needs to be there in such a democratic state, in such a democratic city, where progressive Democrats, uh, it's almost like, what kind of progressive Democrat are you? Not like even (laughs) what kind of Democrat are you or Democrat or Republican? How is that something that makes it so that anybody else around the country could look at this and say, there's going to be progressive change in the way you want it to be? Well, I declare that Democrats have been part of the problem. 100%. Democrats like Andrew Cuomo, sadly, the Bill de Blasio that interviewed for the job seven years ago turned out to be a totally different Bill de Blasio. Democrats have suffered for the, the same status quo protection program that Republicans have suffered from. And that's been a problem. When you look at the response to the protest, if your response to the pandemic and to the protest have the same impact, not the same, you know, verboseness, not the same ostensible bigotry that, you know, they're obviously more intelligent than Donald Trump because he's just not intelligent. But if it has the same impact to the same communities, what's the difference if it's a Democrat or Republican? And that's a question we really have to ask us. So much so that the Democrats have now risked the entire country on Joe Biden, on more of the same, who has said that we want to go back to a time before Donald Trump. And most of us saying, no, the hell we don't. That time didn't work for a lot of us. We need a new time. You had Democrats so afraid of some kind of different change, they were willing to back Michael Bloomberg. These are Democrats are like this. Even black are like this. And we're going to go Mike Bloomberg just so we can keep our own system of status quo. When you look at Biden, though, obviously you were you were hoping for Bernie Sanders. Uh, when you look at Biden now in this point, uh, he he is the choice that Democrats have or that the country has uh, other than Donald Trump. Does that mean that he's the right choice for president? Between those two, we are, you have no, there is no choice between those two. It's Joe Biden. That's it. But at some point, people have to put somebody forward that people want to vote for, not because they want to vote against the other person. And I would hope we learned our mistakes from four years ago, but we haven't. And I hope we haven't risked too much. People always say we don't want to vote for the lesser two evils. I do have to say this is a different time. That, you know, Donald Trump is an existential Trump to everything we know and not just in this country, but around the planet. And so there is no choice. But I hope at some point Democrats learn a lesson. I really wish there was a viable third party in this country because the monopoly that these two parties have are damaging to the country. I'm not sure that Joe Biden would like it to be uh, his bumper sticker that Donald Trump is an existential threat to this country, so you have no choice. But that seems to be where you are. Um, I, I, uh, I want to close with this. Uh, we started off talking about you being an activist elected official. You were at sort of the front end of people who were more activists getting into politics. Obviously, you started out as a city councilman, so working your way up. There are, over the last couple of years and now more this year, people who are trying to bring progressive change into the systems. Some of those people running in primaries in New York that are coming up in a few weeks uh, and, and around the country. When you look at it from the, the advantage you have of a decade of trying to do this, what would you say to them of, okay, if you win, congratulations, but here's what you need to know about what this is actually going to look like? 
Um, I just want people to know it's more difficult than they think. The two things that have always surprised me, how hard it is just to do the right thing, the thing that everybody agrees with, and people will not do it for. That has always just been amazing to me, how little you won't do it for a title for a couple of dollars that don't even go that far. And so my hope is that people come in, and look, I'm a human being, so I can't act like I'm above reproach on everything, but I feel like my batting average is pretty good. But I do, you know, I want folks to understand that our seats are not more important than the people we're representing. It's just not. And there are points where you have to risk it. And I, I always went by that and by remembering that I didn't get elected to get reelected. And I did not get elected to go to high office. I got elected to do a job for the people of my district and now for the city. Now, don't get me wrong, my hope is that I get reelected. <laughs> you know, and obviously I went to high office. I hope it works out. But that can't be the primary driver of the decisions that we make. And I hope that the people who are coming in understand that. Because it is hard to do the right thing. It's hard when the mayor, the governor, the speaker calls and they promise you this and they promise you that. You just got to block it out and stay focused. And sometimes if you're by yourself, but it's the right thing to do, it's okay. You know, 10 years ago, I was crazy lefty Jamani, who was an activist, fighting against a billionaire mayor and a very powerful police commissioner. And 10 years later, I'm the second highest elected official in the city of New York. That's wild. It is, and it's it's why I thought it would be you would be for many reasons the right person to talk to for this episode. So I'm glad that we were able to do it. Jumani Williams, thanks for being here on the ticket. Thank you. I appreciate it. That'll do it for this week of the ticket politics in the Atlantic. Thanks to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode, and to Catherine Wells, the executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. To support the show and all our work, the best ways with a subscription. Just go to theatlantic.com slash support us. Thanks for listening and stay safe.